continue in worship with a reading from the book of Ephesians. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give room for the devil. Thieves, give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up. As there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked as a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why don't you have a seat? Uh, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be here with you this morning. I realized after coming up and talking to the camera and telling them to take a survey that my mic wasn't on, so all they saw was me. So if you are watching this at home, would you take the survey? We're trying to find out how people are using the stream, and it would really help us out to make plans for the future. Um, we're talking about the communal life of the church for the month of August. Uh, we ha are just in Ephesians for the lectionary, and um, the commands that are in this passage, especially that I read today, are just so rich, such a rich, like, textured tapestry of what life is meant to be like for you and me as Christians, how we're called to live. Now, it's, um, it's worth noting, I think, as far as this list goes, that there's actually not a lot in this list um, that is like, particular to Christianity, you know? Like, you can look at the world system, the, the, the ethical system of, of Islam or, or even humanism or whatever it is, Confucianism, and you would find a lot of similarities. Don't steal, don't lie. The thing that makes Christianity different as far as an ethical, moral system from the other moral and ethical systems in the world is what Paul says should be the motive or the, 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 the operation by which we do the things. And, and I want to begin here because I think it's the most important thing probably that I could say at the beginning, just to keep us from listening for 20 minutes and trying to become good moralists. Right before the text we read this morning, he says this in verse 22. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourself with the new self created after or according to the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so everything we're going to talk about today, for Paul, there's this idea that what we're going to be doing is we take, there's a part of us that we take off, like it's the old self, 
And then there's a new part that we put on. And so he's like, take off lying and put on the truth. Take off stealing and put on production and generosity and so on and so forth. Take off uh, destructive words and put on constructive words. In other words, what Paul is saying again and again in this, just and we just sang it, is that he says, uh, do not do these things. But he doesn't simply say, do not lie because lying is bad. We would all say, amen, yes, we know lying is bad. But he says, do not lie because of who you are now. Do not lie because of what you have become, because of what God is making you. He never intended moral behavior simply to be for moral behavior's sake. He says, in that sense, stop lying because of who you are. That is, a person who lies is a person who disempowers people by withholding the truth, but you've been made in the image of God and are given the likeness of God, and God is one who empowers, who gives the truth. So you be like that. Stop stealing because of who you are. Someone who is made in the image of the procreative, creative, productive image of God, who acquires so that he can be generous, who has so that he can give. Stop slandering because of who you are. You're made in the image of the person who spoke light and existence into being with words. Your words are meant to heal and to build up. We talked about this last week. And I think this apex or this idea reaches an apex in these two commands. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is your seal, a constant reminder of your calling to be a temple of God and forgive as you have been forgiven by God through the death of Jesus. Um, now, every single one of those, I think, would be really valuable to go through and to spend, like, a whole time on. Like, talk about, like, why do we work? We work so that we can be generous. Like, why don't we steal? We steal. Uh, why, why, why don't we steal? Because it's illegal. And also, so that we can, so that we can have more to give to those who, who have and so on and so forth. But um, I wanted today instead just focus on, like, one part of this text that, for me, struck a really close chord uh, this week. And I'll just be, like, a little honest for a second. Um, I'll try to be honest this whole time. Just, you know, like after this, it's all lies. But for this next, the next 30 seconds, this, um, I just, I mean, I, I hit a wall this week and um, I just hit a wall on Monday. And I think some of you probably understand what that feels like. And I, I struggled all week, therefore, to, 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 to not feel just locked, like trapped or stuck, you know, or paralyzed in some way. And I ended up uh, coming across a sermon that was preached 30 years ago in Manhattan by um, my good friend who I've never met, Tim Keller, um, who is a man who has an indelible mark on my life in ministry, though I've never been in the same room with him. And um, anyway, I, I'm leaning on him more than I normally would, or leaning on anyone, um, because something that he said really struck a chord in my heart and began to, I think, make sense of even some of like the anxiety that some of us are, or at least that I am feeling in this moment. Um, and so I, I tell you all that just to kind of say, I mean, for one thing, I want to give credit where credit is due. Like a lot, a lot of the best ideas from here come from our brother uh, in, in Manhattan. But also um, just to acknowledge like we're all like, not, some of us aren't doing okay right now and that's okay if you're not doing okay. Like there's a sense where we have to all be okay in this space. And like this is a space where that isn't true. Maybe that's true tomorrow morning at Google or MailChimp, but it isn't true in here. Um, and also just to like recognize like our like we've been through a very hard thing and we need to be figuring out how to take care of ourselves on the other side of it. Um, thankfully, my family is awesome and my colleagues, and so I'm getting out of here this week for a number of days to pray. But like you, if you feel like you've hit a place of like I don't know, I'm stuck. Like that's where you go. Like okay, <laughs> I need help. I need help. Um, but the word that comes to us today, I think, is beginning to speak to what is some of the stuff that we're all carrying around inside of us, and that word is anger. 
what is some of the stuff that we just like have bottled up inside of us that is like actually creating a lot of havoc and turmoil and within us? Um, so I just want to look at this under three headings today. The first is this. What is anger meant for? There is something in this text that's altogether surprising if you're, if you're coming from a very like sort of like pacifistic, like, and that is that Paul says really clearly in here, be angry. He says, be angry, but do not sin. But he's, he, he, it's, an, it's an imperative. And what that means if you, is it's a command. Be angry. So Paul understands that if we're going to be Christians, we're going to be angry. And the reason that we're going to be angry is because God is angry. And so if we're not experiencing any anger, then there's something about us that is not God-like. It means very matter-of-factly that if you're not angry, you're not living into the image of Christ. Our struggle, though, with this idea of anger is that most of us equate anger with grumpiness, moodiness, fickleness, explosiveness, abuse, violence, And so when we say be angry, we immediately think like, I don't want to be angry. Like who wants to be angry? You know, you think of that person who like unnecessarily just lays on their horn all the way through the intersection just to let everyone know that something wrong just happened to them. Like, I don't want to be that guy. If you are that guy, stop. (laughs) No one wants to be that guy. No one wants to be angry like that. But anger is not intrinsically wrong. In fact, I think it's interesting to think that maybe there's no emotion that is intrinsically wrong. That all emotions actually were given to us from the nature and character of God. And that as such, like maybe there's like a way in which emotions can go bad, which we'll talk about in a minute. But at their core level, they actually might be constructive. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist in the nature of God. Anger as we see it in the Bible, is indignation at injustice. You see in Mark chapter 5, for example, this really beautiful story where Jesus is in the tabernacle or the temple, I can't remember where he is, and he's, it's Sabbath, so you're not allowed to do anything. And um, you're especially not allowed to do anything uh, because of all these additional laws that the religious teachers had put around Sabbath practice. It wasn't like in the Old Testament law, like, but all these other additional teachings and Talmud and whatever had been constructed around it so that now you like, couldn't do anything at all. And there's a man who walks into the temple and he has palsy, withered hand. And Jesus is going to heal this man and the Pharisees are watching him to see if he's going to do it. And Jesus sees them and he knows what's going on in their heart because he's very smart. And he gets angry. It says in Mark 5, he gets very angry and he calls them on it. He says, which one of you, if you had a son who fell in a well, wouldn't pull him out? If you had an ox who fell in a ditch, you wouldn't get it out. How much more so should this person be healed on Sabbath day? In other words, Jesus uses his anger. He directs it at injustice, the way that a good law has been uh, distorted to now be an object for uh, oppression and also self-righteousness. He directs it, and then he takes that anger, and he, he heals the man. He just looks at the guy, and he says, stretch out your hand. The guy's like, like this, Jesus? And it's amazing. Anger is meant to be directed at injustice. One of the things that Keller said that I really loved, he says, anger is energy aroused in defense of something good and aimed at something wrong. 
If you and I see something that is wrong and we don't get angry about it, about it that is not you being a good person. If we see someone getting trampled on and we don't get angry about it, that is not, that is not like heightened morality on our part. In fact, the more pure and loving that we are, the more angry we probably will be or the more easily angered or easily aroused our anger will be at the broken and unjust things of the world. I was just thinking through this as I was putting this together. Like, why should, for example, Christians be angry about pornography? Because it finances sexual exploitation and trafficking of women and children. And it incites violence in homes. And it has rewired the human brain for two generations now to automatically dehumanize one another. That's why you should hate pornography. Why should Christians hate patriarchal sexism? Not patriarchy in general, but patriarchal sexism. Because it disempowers our female siblings just simply because of their anatomy. And it's used to perpetuate oppression and the unjust elevation of men. It leads to abuse, exploitation, rape, And those things have created trauma, which has now trickled down for generation after generation after generation. And I know for a fact, statistically and also personally, because of your stories that you've told me, that there's trauma all over this room. And it's not even stuff that actually necessarily happened specifically to you, but it happened to your mom or happened to your grandmother. That's why you should hate sexism. It destroys communities and family trees. It creates generational sins that get passed down one layer after another after another. That's why you should hate this stuff. The whole human fabric is torn up by it. We could say the same things about systemic racism that has intentionally, legally disempowered, punished, criminalized, and even enslaved people simply because of the melanin in their skin. Or greed and materialism that has created a system who has decided that certain human beings and certain human communities are expendable, essentially, and pay below living wages, trapping millions in irrecoverable poverty in order to prop up the insatiable greed of the wealthy who, at the end of the fashion season, take our stuff, give it away, which ends up in landfills all over the world in people's backyards. That's why you should hate these things. That's what you should be angry about. That's what the anger of God is like. I remember having a really moving experience a number of years ago when I saw the movie Blood Diamond. Remember that movie? Some of you did. It was, it was Leo, you know, um, it's Leo DiCaprio. Um, it's a really amazing movie. It's really, really terrible. It's about the um, black market for priceless diamonds that are mined uh, in war zones, in minefields by children. And these children are often made into uh, like soldiers and given drugs to brainwash them. And um, so that they become like merciless killers. And uh, I remember just watching it. And of course, it's like there's a redemptive arc in it. And, but I just remember watching it and just at the end of it, just crying for the longest time, like on and on. Because I just thought like, my God, your heart must hurt all the time, God. Because it's one of those things when you see, you're like, is this really happening in the world? And the answer is, yes, this is really happening in the world. This is happening right now. This is what anger is for. Anger exists because evil exists. Hatred was made for evil. 
One of my favorite books is the second book of the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis. It doesn't get nearly as much love as Narnia, and I, and I understand why. And I think it's mostly because of the third book, which is a disaster in my, in my opinion. But the first two books are really awesome. And some people would really, they may leave the church over what I just said. But um, the second book is called Paralandra, and it is about the, it is a recreation of the Eden story. And I can't possibly explain all of it, but you're just going to have to trust me. It is well worth your time. But there's a point in it in which this man, who's the protagonist, the hero, comes toe-to-toe with the antagonist, who is, called, who is called in this point like the unman. It's incarnate evil. And they get into a fight. It is an amazing scene. And there's this moment in it where suddenly... Uh, Ransom, the protagonist, realizes he's no longer dealing with anything human, but he's dealing with nothing but pure evil. And this is what it says. And then an experience that perhaps no good man can ever have in the world came over him. A torrent of perfectly unmixed lawful hatred. The energy of hating never before felt without some guilt, some dim knowledge that he was failing fully to distinguish the sinner from the sin. It rose into his arms and legs until he felt that they were pillars of burning blood. It is perhaps difficult to understand why this filled ransom, not with horror, but with a kind of joy. The joy came from finding at last what hatred was made for. As a boy with an axe rejoices on finding a tree, or a boy with a box of colored chalk rejoices on finding a pile of perfectly white paper. So he rejoiced in the perfect congruity between his emotion and its object. Hatred exists because evil exists. It's why it is active and alive in the heart of God, and why it's a good thing that it's in the heart of God. When we say, come, Lord Jesus, we are saying, come and judge the earth. And we get a little afraid in that because we realize we're vulnerable And that's true. But the gospel is actually that through Christ, when he comes, he will judge the sin, but receive us in his righteousness. So we can have confidence. That's why the Bible again and again says, be bold, have confidence. Like, don't like lift your head. It's a day, it's a day of of joy that is coming. And yet, and yet, the anger of God is a good thing because it will finally and it will finally swallow up all the evil and darkness around us. Dr. King, in his, um, he has six principles of nonviolence. You probably are familiar with this. I've quoted them here before. But principle three, I think, applies to this. He says, nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims and are not evil people. The nonviolent resistor seeks to defeat evil not people. That's what anger is made for. That is when anger is good. That's why Paul can say, be angry. If we're not angry, we're living in some sort of a weird, like, rose-colored world where we don't think there's actual evil, or we just try to turn everything into, like, psychiatry or whatever. But how can anger go bad? That's the second point. Be angry must mean that the suppression or denial of anger is wrong. But the fact that Paul immediately has to say, but do not sin, must imply that it's very, very easily for that anger to get off track, which I think we all know is true. 
Verses 30 to 32 speak to this uh, explicitly. Let me just read them again. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of which you were marked as a seal for the day of redemption and put away from you bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. Um, So we can be righteous in our anger. I think this is an important thing to say. Like you can be angry about the right thing and still have it go off the tracks. Like still have it go bad, like bad fruit. And it turns into what he says here is bitterness, rage, and slander, which uh, Keller broke into three different responses to anger, which I just want to talk through one at a time. He says, basically, when we experience anger, we tend to either blow up, we clam up, or we become bitter. And um, I think we all know what those look like, but that tends to be like one of, like, you tend to probably have like a major and then a minor, or like maybe you do what was sometimes like, like I've, I've seen a lot of people do, which is like you blow up and then you feel shame, so then you clam up. You don't actually deal with it. You're just like, you're just, you're just, do, you're just doing like the same thing, but you're doing it in a different direction. Anger is energy. This is how he said it. Anger is energy aroused in defense of something good and aimed at something wrong. In other words, anger is um, something that can be constructive, but it is also tearing. So when you have anger and you just unleash it, you just ventilate it, it tears at things. It destroys things. We all know this. A lot of us have experienced this. Probably all of us have experienced this firsthand. Most of us, if not all of us, have also done this to people. It tears at people. But the opposite is also true. If we take it inside ourselves, what does it tear up? Us. It tears up our insides. We become people who are carrying around all this pain and frustration and it chews on our hearts and we don't feel at rest and So because anger is energy, it's going, to, it's going to strike something. And Paul says, don't let your anger get to that place. Wrath and anger are internal feelings. Some of us sit here and, and again, I know he uses the word anger. It's frustrating because he also uses the word anger elsewhere. But like wrath is an internal feeling. It's that seething. Whereas he says wrangling and slander, these are outward expressions of these things. Finally, though, he says bitterness. Put away from you bitterness. And I'll just say, to be honest, like that was probably the word that came to me this week from the Holy Spirit that felt like the the Spirit was sort of blowing all over that word. Um, When Keller said this, he said, bitterness is when I hold someone liable. The anger may be righteous, but continually willing or hoping for someone else's harm or distress, or to be brought up short. Um, Bitterness is self-imprisoning in that sense. It's a lie because what we think we're doing with bitterness is we're holding someone accountable, but actually we're the one who is getting consumed in it. We tend to think as long as we won't forgive someone, we're the one in control, but we actually are the one who's not free. Frederick Buechner uh, says this, and I, I've, I've read this here before, but I love this quote. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain 
you are given and the pain you are giving back. It is in many ways a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, though, is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Uh, when, I, when I heard uh, Tim talk about bitterness this week, I felt just struck through because I, I realized that I have been holding on to bitterness for years about, uh, towards a, a group of people that hurt me deeply and hurt my family. Um, people who did something wrong. And my anger about that is, is good, but my bitterness is controlling me. It's something that God is inviting me to release, to forgive, to let go of. Uh, maybe this is some of what the Lord is trying to expose in me this week. I don't know. I think we need to be aware of, like, we're coming off of a year in which, a year and a half, 11 years, I don't know how long it's been. I think a lot of people are angry, but we don't, Christians don't want to say that. We want to say we're depressed or we're exhausted or we're like at the end of our rope or whatever it is. We have lots of ways of saying it, but to just say that we're angry and that we're actually like, we're holding on to stuff and we don't know what to do with it. We don't, we don't want to admit that for one reason or another. Um, Paul is giving us a way out here. He's showing us that like the thing that you feel inside of you, it's, it's real and it doesn't have to be there. There is a way to ventilate it properly, to exercise it properly, and then there is a lot of ways it can go wrong. Which is our final point, how to be angry like God. He says in the next verse, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love. Um. It might feel, in fact, it does feel, I'm sure, to some of us, as it does to me, that there seems to be an incongruency or a contradiction between anger and love. But as I've said before, and I think maybe I said it last week or Monday, I don't remember. One of the times I taught recently, the opposite of love is not anger, it's apathy. It's selfishness. The opposite of love is indifference, not anger. I have never met with a person who is so angry at one of their kids who's making all these decisions and like feels like they're wrecking their life and walked away from that meeting and said, my, that person hates their child. You say the opposite. Maybe, maybe they're too wrapped around. Maybe there's too much identity. Maybe it's codependent. But at the very least, you wouldn't walk away as a person who's like, I'm so angry that this person is doing this and say like, why do you hate that person so much? It's the indifference, it's the apathy that actually is the opposite. And so God's anger and love exist simultaneously, but it exists without bitterness. God is angry, it says in the scriptures, he is angry at the wicked all day long. But it also says in the scriptures that he does not delight in the death of the wicked, and he longs for all to come to repentance. Do you know what that means? That God loves all you and me and the world so much that he's angry about all the things that are hurting it, but he wants nothing but good for it. That's very good news. Otherwise, God would not be a God who actually had like a real kind of love for us. He would be like, I just hope you guys figure it out, but either way, I'm okay. He's angry about the things that are personally impacting him because he loves us. 
But God's anger arouses him to do what? It says here, right here. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This language of fragrant offering or pleasing aroma of the sin sacrifice, it, um, it's meant to sort of hearken us back to the book of Leviticus, which is a, one of the early books in your Bible, which is about the priesthood and the ceremonial laws. And, and once again and again, it talks about sin sacrifices and says, like, when the smoke of this goes up, it'll be a pleasing aroma to God, to the Lord. And yet the book of Hebrews, which is a New Testament book, the book of Hebrews tells us that, that the blood of goats doesn't ever actually deal with sin. That every one of these things was always just a metaphor pointing to one ultimate sacrifice. Every, every, every bull, every sheep, every lamb, every goat who was slaughtered on the altar was never actually paying for any sin. It was always pointing to one sacrifice that would pay for every sin. Now you say, that feels like a lot of needless blood. Well, it isn't for two reasons. One, think of the power of the metaphor when millions and millions and millions of gallons of blood have been spilled, always, always pointing to one sacrificial lamb. The weight of that, the whole thing was always about him. And second, you do know what a sacrifice is, right? It's the first step of the barbecue. And I'm not being like weird. I mean, literally, this was the way God ensured that his people feasted. So in the same stroke, in the sacrificial system, God both says, I want you to take the sin in your life seriously, and then I want you to rejoice that your sins are forgiven. When we see all this stuff of God like killing these animals, these animals became food. These temples became tables. In other words, the thing that God said, this is what needs to happen in order for sin to be dealt with was ultimately a thing that was for our good because it was pointing us in the right direction and simultaneously it was giving us an opportunity for joy. What kind of God would give us a law that would both highlight our sin and also for celebration? The kind of God who is angry at the sin in your life right now, but not because he wants less for you, because he wants more for you. As we read, nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice and not people. Why? Because nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims and are not evil people. The nonviolent resist, resistor seeks to defeat evil and not people. In other words, the anger that Paul is talking about here is pointing us in two directions. One, it's pointing us to exercise that anger towards not people, but problems, injustice, things that are wrong recognizing that people are complicated, that people make sense. That may not be satisfactory, but the people make sense. And so therefore, I'm not going to hate you. I'm going to hate the thing that is destroying all these people's lives. And if you have a hard time breaking those things apart, yeah, I know, we all do. But that's still what we're called to do, and it's what God calls us to do. But simultaneously, it moves us in the direction of forgiveness. It tells us that God's anger compelled him to his own sacrifice, and that we, in similar way, must be willing to forgive others as we've been forgiven. If I struggle to forgive people, it tends to mean one of three things. One, I don't actually think I've done anything wrong, which is self-righteousness. It's a sense of superiority. We say like, oh, I would never have done that. And that makes us feel better about ourselves. 
So I don't want to forgive a person if I feel like I never would have stooped that low. Second, some of us can't forgive because we don't feel forgivable. We feel like we've done stuff that's so bad that no one could forgive us, and it doesn't free us to forgive others. A lot of us, though, we can't forgive because we, um, we just have forgotten what Jesus did for us. Being a Christian is being a person who is melted by spiritual understandings. In Matthew 18, there's a parable Jesus tells of a, of a, of a king who calls in a debtor, and he says, you owe me uh, 10,000 talents, which is 17 years' wages. And the man falls on his feet, and he says, or falls on his feet. He falls on his feet because he was hanging in midair. And then he gets on his face, and he says, please, 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 I, I can never repay this. Please forgive it. And the king says, okay, for, I forgive you. And then he goes out and immediately shakes down a guy who owes him 10 bucks and throws him in debtor's prison. Says, you're going to rot forever. The king finds out about this, and he is furious. The anger of God. He's furious. He says, how could you not understand what I have done for you? And then you go and do this. The reason that a lot of us are unwilling to forgive is because we've forgotten what Jesus did for us. We've forgotten the enormous debt that we've been let go of. And we hold on to these smaller little debts that people owe us. And they, that's not to minimize them. They don't feel small when they've shaped your whole life. When they've, when they've torn significant parts of your self-understanding, when they've, when they've colored the sky under which you've lived for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, they don't feel like small things that we're holding on to. But in the grand scheme of things, the thing that was given to you and me and Jesus on the cross is meant to compel us. And a lot of times we don't forgive because we just aren't thinking about that enough. It's why we come to this table and why we're coming to it right now. Because we need to be reminded of what was done for us. That Jesus himself became the fragrant offering that made us right with God. That you right now are in no way distant from God, except in your own imagination. Like you may feel far from God, but that's you. That's not God. Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall. He's torn the curtain. God is right here, right here, right next to you. That's what's been given to each one of us because of Jesus on the cross. And now we withhold ourselves from other people. We withhold forgiveness from other people when we ourselves have been forgiven an even greater and more incredible debt. I know that this can be um, a hard thing necessarily to, to hear, and yet I, um, I'm not just trying to do like that Christian spin thing. I actually think it's really good news that we can walk out of here actually rejoicing that God's love is an angry love. And when you see things going on this week and you're just like, does anyone care about this? You can say like, yes, someone cares about it. And when you think about your own story and places where you have been wrong and you wonder if anyone actually is ever going to do anything about it, you can say, yes, someone is going to do something about it. And that this is actually, in a sense, what it, the calling of a Christian is to be. And I think, like, I actually think that if we were angry the way God is angry, people would never mistake it for the sort of anger that you see all around us. It would be the sort of thing that actually galvanizes the kind of healing and kindness and gentleness that Paul says is involved in being imitators of God. That that is actually, it's an anger that makes us more tender. One of the things that uh, I love 
that Tim has said for years in hundreds of sermons, and now he, this, this morning's sermon is brought to you by Tim Keller, but he, uh, he, always, uh, he always says, Christians' hearts should be bigger than anyone else because you can, you can cry more and laugh more than anyone else in the world because you can feel it all, because you put the whole thing in a story and you know where it's going. So you don't have to get run over by stuff. You don't have to suppress it. You can feel the anger. You can feel the loss, the sadness. You can grieve like none other. And also, you can hope like none other and rejoice like none other because you know the ultimate end is good. And so may we, may you, go from here with your heart enlarged so that you can feel all that God feels to be his hands and feet in the world. Grace and peace to you, friends. You are loved. See you, uh, see you soon. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.